A brief contextual note before we dive into the episode. Mark and I recorded this conversation back in the summer with plans of releasing it outside of our regular posting schedule as a bonus episode. And for a few reasons, we decided to just include it as one of our monthly releases, but it got put on hold to prioritize the conversations we recorded at the ACSD conference. So now, six months later, we are pleased to share what we hope will be a truly historic episode of A Higher Education. Welcome to A Higher Education, a podcast production of the Association for Christians in Student Development. ACSD is committed to assisting student affairs professionals to stay current and relevant in the quickly changing climate of higher education, and in particular, Christian higher education. Join us as we share the perspectives and stories of student development professionals who sit at the intersection of Christian faith and higher education. Hey, ACSD, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for joining us for this bonus episode. Uh, This one is for the nerds, as you could tell by the episode title. We're going to be talking about higher ed history. Uh, But before we jump into that, Mark, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, and I don't know that I'm offended that you would refer to us as nerds for loving this, but I hope that anyone listening is not actually like immediately turning this off if they're like, well, I'm not into that because we truly have done some work here to try to make this a fun episode, despite it being history focused and fact focused. So yeah, I just want to say that, but to get to your specific question, I'm doing well. Uh, it's been a good summer and I'm really enjoying the slower pace of not having students on campus, uh, which is also helpful because I switched campuses this summer. So that's that's -hmm. been a whole process in and of itself that's taken up a lot of a lot of headspace, a lot of heart space, but it's been it's been really good. So how are you doing up in the Pacific Northwest? I'm doing well. I have a boss in the office who says, you know, it's good when the parking lots are full and it's good when the parking lots are empty. And parking lots are empty right now and I'm okay with that. Mm, Those are Uh, some words of wisdom. Yes. Um, I have also recently moved off campus. I live in a house now and yeah, feel like a real person. Isn't it wild? This is my first time like ever living in non-university housing since I was 18 years old, which is just wild to me. Um, But yeah, I'm enjoying the West Coast for a lot of reasons. The backyard that I get to enjoy uh, without anybody from campus walking by at a random time or making noise that's that's just part of it so cheers to us making moves yep look at us west coast best coast that's what i keep hearing so (laughs) i've been here like less than a month and i'm already like uh, west coast best coast like (laughs) i'm insufferable uh well mark you mentioned that we have put in the work to make this episode a good one and not just rich in content, but also hopefully entertaining. We have yeah. yet to see if that is the case. Um, but let's talk a little bit about what this episode entails um, and some of the work that we have put into it. Um, so it. for me personally, this episode was kind of born out of, the listeners are tired of hearing about this by now, but I am working on my EDD at Bethel University Uh, in higher education leadership and just got out of a 40-hour Zoom residency course that was focused on the history and philosophy of higher education in the United States. So basically, as I was sitting in this course, I have too low of a position for this to be applicable to me every single day. I'm not sitting in meetings with board of trustees or making high-level executive decisions. I The biggest decisions I make are which of the two coffee shops in town I'm taking a student to that day. 
but I did get to engage in these courses um, and think about how I was going to bring everything I was learning um, with these brilliant professors and classmates and bring it to the ACSD podcast and present it in a way that was um, enjoyable and informative. So that's kind of the experience um, that I am bringing to the podcast. Mark, what did you do to prepare? I moved from one state to another and it was like a 2000 mile drive. And whereas you paid money to learn a lot of these facts, I just happened to find the exact same textbook without even knowing that that was your textbook. Right. Um, and listen to it while I was driving cross country to learn all of these facts. So that's how I got involved with all this. One of the most frustrated moments I had this summer was just absolutely working so hard on reading word for word this, I don't know, 700 page textbook about the history of American higher ed and just working on it for two months. And the day that I go to log it into Goodreads because I've finished it cover to cover, I see that the day before, less than 24 hours, Mark had posted that he had finished this on Audible on his drive through the, through the Western United States. And I learned later at 1.5 speed. You know what? You just can't hang with me when it comes to reading. I think everyone in my life has learned that that is just the reality. Uh, so I'm sorry. I wish I felt bad, but I don't. I really, yeah. You, you come for me, you best not miss when it comes to reading. <laughs> that's That's what it comes down to. But yes, I listened to the whole book. I had no idea it was also your textbook at the time. It was just the, the history of American higher education or something like that. And I found it on Audible. It was free. And I'm like, well, shoot, I've got a long drive. I'll pop it in. And it was awesome. And I remember texting you at one point midway through a fun fact from it. And that was really like, Carrie, you had mentioned the idea of a fun fact episode. And I think it was born out of some of the reading and, and learning you were doing. And so when we started realizing like, oh, we're reading the same book. There's a lot of fun facts in here. There's a lot of really crazy things that have happened in this industry we get to work in. We are like, well, we got we to gotta do something with this. And so we want to share the fun with you. But we also think there's a bigger value, um, which is why we're doing this episode. We think there's a lot of value in knowing our foundational history. Uh, the more that we understand that we are situated in a bigger context than just our day-to-day -day work. You know, the work of taking students to one of two coffee shops in town, like that is good student development work. But it's also situated in a much bigger context than just that in, in understanding the role that it plays in student development and in, in the higher education world in general, I think is really important. Uh, and it, it pays a little bit of honor to the, the educators who come before us, the co-curricular educators who we stand on their shoulders. So we want to share a little bit of the wild and inspiring history. So without further ado, let's jump in. And we like doing that kind of back and forth speed round in some of our usual episodes. So we're going to do a similar speed round where Kara and I are going to go back and forth sharing some fun facts. So our first fun fact is that in the early 1800s, the University of South Carolina, their student code of conduct permitted students to settle student disagreements with a duel. So they allowed students to use their fists, swords, or pistols to settle their differences with each other, uh, which is just bonkers. Like, can you imagine if we allowed students to duel in modern history, like in modern day, uh, anytime they have issues? Like some of them already do. We know that. Like they just take it out on each other. But can you imagine if that was still in effect? <laughs> Amazing. And I'll 
prep the audience for saying most of these do come from the colonial period because there was some crazy stuff going on then. It was wild back then. There was actually, so there was only one fatal duel that took place. It happened off campus because you could get in big trouble for dueling on campus, which I'm like, you can get in big trouble just like in a like metaphysical way when you duel someone because you can die. And that's what happened in this. It was actually over a plate of fish. Two guys reached for the same plate of fish at the same time and they wouldn't let go. And they ended up challenging each other to a duel. Uh, one of them was killed instantly and the other one died a couple years later from his wounds. So kind of morbid, but also just wild. So that's our first, I don't know if I'm going to call that a fun fact, but the, the student duel Gosh. part, wild fact. I hope it was a school at least on a coast somewhere. I mean, if it was the 1800s, it was probably the East Coast. But I don't think they could ship fish into the goodness. Midwest at that point. <laughs> it is not worth fighting over the fish in the Midwest. I'll tell nope. you that. Nope. The fish sticks are not worth it. All right, Kara, hit us <laughs> with the second fun fact. Keeping with the theme of the East Coast, if you know the University of Virginia, something you may not know about them is when they first started selecting school colors. So back in, I think this was... Goodness, as late as the early 1800s, when schools started to select mascots and university colors to show their school pride, uh, UVA originally selected a dark gray and a crimson red. And the crimson red was for the blood of the fallen Confederate soldiers. But they were told by printing companies that the dye of that red in particular was in short supply. So if they wanted their gear more quickly, they would have to choose different colors. So turns out UVA, that uh, blue and orange that you know it for, has been the temporary colors of the institution for over a century now. I love it. What a, what a commitment to the temporary. All right. Uh, so in higher ed, we love our Latin. We love our Latin phrases, uh, but we don't always know what they mean. So here are a couple that you've probably used as a student development professional in the last year. And you probably had no idea what you were saying in Latin. Uh, so alumni, you think about that word and how that's a reference to the school, you know, your identity in the school uh, that you went to. And it means foster son, which I think just like evokes. Yeah, that's that's such a I mean, admittedly masculine, uh, but strong sense of uh, connection and belonging, uh, which also makes sense when you understand your alma mater, uh, the school that you attended, means your nourishing or bounteous mother, which I think is awkward. <laughs> Rings of in loco parentis a little bit. Yep. So, Mark, did you know it was generally understood in the 16 and 1700s? So we're talking early U.S. higher ed history. Um, as part of their compensation, the president was permitted grazing rights in the college yard for their cows. That's incredible. That's I, a good one. I would like for anybody who works in Indiana or Wisconsin-based schools to let me know if that practice still exists at your institution. But I think this is a mostly obsolete practice. That's good. That's good. And I'm learning because I'm on the West Coast, we're supposed to dunk on the Midwest schools often, right? So. <laughs> All right. So going back to the East Coast, uh, there's a statue of John Harvard at Harvard, which is great, right? That, that makes sense. But it's not actually meant to resemble John Harvard. They just grabbed a random Harvard student and had him sit for the sculptor and said, there we go. That's John Harvard, because they didn't have any images of John Harvard to base it on because the dude was around in like the 1600s. So I just think that's hilarious that like when you're on campus, you'll see a statue that says John Harvard and it legitimately looks nothing like the guy. 
which I feel is appropriately humbling. Like all of us could probably use a little benefit of uh, being humbled like that, where where we get honored, but it actually doesn't award any kind of recognition to us personally. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, at least Harvard is named after someone who probably gave a lot to that institution. Um, I have learned recently that Yale is named after a guy who gave 562 pounds. Now, this again, during the colonial period, so I don't know exactly what that translates to today, but not a lot of money. Um, Yale's named after this guy who gave that amount of money to the school, and they changed their name to his last name, hoping that he would leave a lot more to the college in his will, Um, and he did not do that, and the college is still named after him. Wow, that is... I mean, talk about your advancement team having a fail on that one. Um, I think in a lot of ways, that's not surprising to me, though, because the desire to like the desire to entice people in with naming rights just will never cease to fascinate me how that's like so important to some people. Um, And along with celebrity and having recognition uh, in 1996, Southampton College, I'm, I'm not even sure where that's located, um, but they awarded a unique doctorate to their uh, commencement speaker. And Kara, I'm going to do this one in the form of trivia. Which cartoon character was their featured commencement speaker in 1996 who was awarded a doctorate of amphibious letters? Any guesses? Mickey Mouse. No, Kara, we were looking for Kermit the Frog. Kermit the Frog (laughs) was legitimately the commencement speaker at Southampton College in 1996. So I guess that's Dr. Kermit the Frog now. Oh, Kermit's done so many more things than I have. (laughs) But you're on your way. You are soon going to be in the likes of Dr. Kermit the Frog. (laughs) Oh, goodness. And running it out with my favorite one. Um, also in the vein of donations to universities, an early donation of 300 pounds. So even less than this Yale guy gave an early donation of 300 pounds to William and Mary college was made by three convicted pirates. And when they made this donation to this college, it actually allowed them to be spared from the gallows. Do you think they each chipped at 100 equally or was like one guy not pulling his weight, but he could convince the other guys like, hey, spot me a quick 50. I've got 50. I'm good for the other 50. You know, I I don't know enough about pirates to know for sure, but I'm hoping they at least all chipped in equally. And the conversion rate. So if what, how much was it? 562 pounds equals the name on the school. But a hundred pounds average per guy is equal to your life. Like, what's the conversion <laughs> rate on that? Well, the name lasts forever. True. There's an eternal yep. factor. So you're buying immortality. That's exactly. yep, good point. Good point. Good exactly. Point. Those are fun facts. <laughs> All right. So I'm sure more of those exist, but those were some of our favorites that came out of the textbook. Um, and now to really get into the whole point of why we're here is to dive a little bit deeper to explore some big events that we know happened in the United States in the last several hundred years that higher education has been around. Um, I can even start by saying that there were institutions that existed before we even declared ourselves an independent country. So higher education has been around in the U.S. as long as there has been a U.S. to speak of. And so Mark and I are going to go back and forth and 
give some context that we think is helpful somewhat to your roles as professionals in student development, but also just some interesting things to know as an employee within a higher education system. So we're going to be talking about a lot of things that may not relate specifically to your institution or even to Christian higher ed specifically, uh, but these are all helpful things to know as we look at the history of this industry that we're in and how it has been affected by global events and national events, but also how higher education has actually shaped our country and how we relate to the world around us because of it. And at so, minimum, it's going to give you some fun facts to drop when you're at that uh, faculty staff kickoff like barbecue that every school has in August and September. Uh, so you can just drop these these facts of knowledge and sound super, super wise, super informed uh, yes, in front of all the, of your colleagues. The subtitle to this episode is how to sound intelligent in front of your faculty. Co-workers. Love it. All right. So, Kara, tell us a little bit. Why are boards and presidents given so much power in U.S. higher education? So. At the roots of American higher ed, just like at the roots of the rest of everything that uh, happened in our country, we started out strong being pretty much anti-Europe in just about everything that we did. So Harvard and Yale, along with some of the earliest colleges in the U.S., looked at institutions such as Oxford and Cambridge, where faculty were given full control of the institution. And so the our universities here looked at that model and said, we want to do something a little bit different. Um, we actually looked towards a more Scottish model of education, um, which supplied some of that power to external boards of governors. And there's been some unique ways that that's played out in the U.S. And you probably know some of the specifics of your own campus. But yeah, it was basically that juxtaposition between what well, we don't want to copy exactly what Oxford and Cambridge are doing Um so I guess we'll look to the Scottish and see what they're doing and try to model that here in our own unique way. Which I think is a good opportunity for all of us to learn more about our shared governance and how our institutions are set up. When you know that there's some very intentional aspects when it comes to control and authority and how that's delineated and shared amongst the institution, I think it's it helps inform when you look at your own institution in some cool ways to be able to say, oh, now I understand why we are the way we are. Um, exactly. And uh, given the values of enterprise and capitalism in our country, it's not surprising that we would look to those business leaders to also help lead our institutions. That's great. So, Mark, maybe a bit more specific to the work that we do. Where did the first student development student development professionals come from? When did they first show up on the scene? Yeah, so uh, there was a, a lot of integration early on in the 16 to 1800s where your faculty served a multifaceted role. So one of the things that we did borrow from the European style of higher education is that sense of what's called in loco parentis, leaning on our Latin again, uh, which basically means in the place of the parents. Uh, and so you had faculty who often... They taught the classes, but they also lived in the dorms, uh, however dorms were functioning, right? Uh, so sometimes it was students living with faculty members in their homes. Uh, but basically, you had that sense that faculty were responsible for the holistic development of students, 
Um, because a lot of times you had these 16, 17 year olds or sometimes even younger who were attending these colleges and needed some of that additional support. But we slowly began to move away from that in the 1800s as faculty began focusing more on training the intellect. Uh, but obviously, as we know, the personal needs will continue to persist. Uh, and so this is where uh, the role of student development professionals began to emerge. And in fact, women played a very significant role in the origin of our field. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, we see this as the case. Uh, it stemmed out of some sexism. There was uh, a lot of women who were being rejected for faculty roles. And yet they were watching as these co-educational contexts where women were starting to study alongside the men needed that support and advocacy. So they began serving in this capacity because they had something to offer in a space that wasn't interested in them offering all they had to offer. Uh, and so there's a, a, a really good book about this called Pioneering Deans of Women, More Than Wise and Pious Matrons. It uh, came out in the early 2000s. And that book talks uh, pretty significantly about, I did this in my dissertation, so this is where, uh, this is something that I've enjoyed learning a lot about. It talks a lot about that aspect of providing for the students and how that need was always there, but where the bifurcation between faculty and student development uh, professionals really began. There's a couple of other key moments uh, that formed student development uh, in some ways. In 1937, there was the American Council on Education, and they commissioned a review called the Student Personnel Point of View that really for the first time began to formalize the world of student development as a uh, co-curricular educational uh, field. Uh, and yet throughout the, the decades since, uh, even though we've seen the formalization and the, and the theoretical co-curricular field continue to grow into what it is today, uh, one of my favorite quotes about a very unfavorite reality uh, comes from Schwartz in 2010. Uh, and I cited this in my dissertation that still, unfortunately, through times, the student development world has become the dumping ground of all unpleasant things, uh, basically the stuff that presidents and faculty didn't want to deal with. So there's always been that dynamic at play that it, that our field exists because it stems out of an industry that started to say, we're gonna prioritize the specialization of what we do, uh, of training the intellect, and yet someone needs to continue to care for the interpersonal and personal needs of the students. So it's it's cool, it's fascinating to learn more about where we come from as an or as a industry. Uh, and I think there's a lot that we can learn about the current dynamics. Again, my dissertation was about student development and uh, faculty and, and the collaboration that we do or do not do on our campuses. And when you start to realize, oh, this problem has been existing and persisting for over 100 years, you see it woven into the DNA of, of our institution. So I think there's a lot we can learn from that. Yeah, and thanks for bringing your dissertation to this conversation, because I think that that is just a highlight that I want to point out of when you are studying anything, history comes into play with it, right? Because you weren't intentionally seeking out the history of student development in the United States when you were pursuing your dissertation. But as part of that process, you have to look at yep. the history of the fields that you're studying. And um, yeah, just a nod to the importance of this type of conversation. Absolutely. So, Kara, one of the questions that you and I both started asking when we were prepping for this uh, was where did, you know, we both work at uh, Christian colleges. The ACSD is for people who are working as Christians in any type of institution, but a preponderance of us work in uh, Christian colleges, evangelical institutions. 
But that we realized through our study, so I'm leading the question here a little bit, we realized the question isn't when did Christian colleges first come on the scene, but it's actually, we flipped that, when did non-religious universities first come on the scene? Yeah, and it was not necessarily a surprise to me that the question is phrased this way, uh, but the course that I was just in definitely opened my eyes to that. Um, Just seeing how the earliest institutions in our country were founded by religious people for religious reasons. Uh, U.S. higher ed was really kind of started with this idea of needing to train ministers. Um, And really the only differences between institutions came from denominational differences. Um, So even these Harvards and Yales that now we think of as very secularized, high levels of learning started on Christian grounds. So the question really is, when did non-religious universities first come on the scene? And the answer to that um, is UVA again, University of Virginia. In 1819, uh, UVA was founded by Thomas Jefferson. And famously, Thomas Jefferson is known for this belief that church and state should be separate. And he founded his school on very, very similar values. Um, he also had this intention of a campus that was, and this these are in my words, but by the students for the students. So it was very student-led. So the first question when we talked about how institutions in the U.S. are not as faculty-governed as they are in some places in Europe, Thomas Jefferson really had this vision of students dictating what their experience looked like while they were on campus, which was an anomaly for the time. Um, we're talking about the 16, even into the 1800s. We did not have this demographic of 18 to 22 year olds on our campuses. It was 15, 16 year olds were going to college. I heard it described in, I think it was in the textbook that students didn't go to high school and then they went to college. They chose, are they going to high school or are they going to college? Um, so anyway, it was unique to have this by the students for the students type of model. Um, and I actually toured this campus, uh, as I was kind of vesting out my college interests in 2014 as a junior in high school. And these philosophical roots are still very much part of that school's identity. Um, the, the tour guide that I was with for the day talked a lot about the separation of church and state and how much say the students have about what actually happens on campus. Hmm. So, Mark, a big reality that we talk a lot about right now is distance education or online education, as we call it more so now. Where did that start and then when did it really gain momentum? Yeah. So I was surprised at how early this became an option. Um, And I think that just it's a reminder that like history is much more robust than we often give it credit for. Uh, In 1873, there was, this is just in the United States. So it may predate this in other contexts. We're just looking at uh, the United States. In 1873 was the first correspondence course. It was called uh, by the Society to Encourage Home Studies. uh, And it was founded in Boston. Uh, And a shout out to University of South Africa in 1946, it became an innovator and leader in the distance ed space. Uh, And I think that's really cool because we often take that very North American centric view of higher education, but the distance ed model has actually been really uh, preemptively uh, 
South Africa and Australia were both leaders ahead of the curve of where the United States has been at every turn. Uh, so I thought that was really cool. Uh, in 1953, you had some of the first use of a different media. Uh, the University of Houston used television to show evening college classes on PBS. Uh, and that was intentionally shown. They had like 13 or so hours a, a week. Uh, and it was all after like dinner time so that viewers could watch it at home uh, after they were done with work. Uh, 1989 was the first time that they offered a full online bachelor's and master's degree. And that was, uh, unsurprisingly, the University of Phoenix. Anyone who's watched daytime TV has seen ads for that. Uh, and then in 2005, you had the first uh, massive online, uh, massive open online courses. And these were often offered for free by individual professors until it was picked up, uh, I think it was by edX and Coursera. Uh, and so th that was where some of the kind of the modern iterations of how we view online education uh, and are seeing it continue to, to adapt really began. And of course, in 2020, 100% of all colleges went fully online. That's a joke. Uh, but honestly, I, I think that was a significant moment, right? Where like we, we all navigated the pandemic, COVID-19 in different ways, but almost every single school had to navigate what does distance education look like. So I thought that was something that was really uh, important for, to, as I looked at the history of distance and online education, even schools who didn't have a desire for that modality were forced into it. Uh, and we continue to see that as a reality. Um, but in all sincerity, what I found was really interesting as I was reading more about this is that uh, distance ed really helped to serve as an equalizer, uh, especially for what we would consider to be non-traditional students, although that term is becoming less and less helpful as that traditional student continues to morph. But for uh, for online education, currently the average age is about uh, 30 years old. So you're seeing that that 18 to 22 year old group is not necessarily who online education is for. And I love that that means college has expanded beyond that traditional group. And as we think about education and the liberal arts uh, kind of curriculum, Kara, tell us a little bit about when that became so foundational in colleges in the United States. Gosh, okay. Let me tell you and cut me off if I talk about this for too long because yeah, we have a time limit on these podcast <laughs> episodes. This was a piece of information that I am shocked that I did not know until two weeks ago because it, it, it impacts so much, not just of the work that we do, but why we show up to work every day. So I'm, I'm really into this. Nerd out on us. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. So in 1828, Yale, who is now infamously known for being named after a guy who gave them a very small donation and left nothing in the will. And they have uh, cattle grazing. Yep. <laughs> they produced this report. And I don't know a ton of the context around why this report was launched, but essentially it sounds like liberal arts was somewhat up in the air in terms of relevance. Does this ring a bell at all? I don't know. Um, so liberal <laughs> Time arts... Time is a flat circle. <laughs> in, the, in the early 1800s, there were elements to a liberal arts education that we would not include in that definition anymore. And that will become clear as I talk about a little bit what happened. But so Yale produced this defense it, uh, for liberal arts. Um, it's known as the 1828 Yale Report. It's out there on the internet. You can read it for yourselves. I think it's really interesting and would recommend it. Um, it had two different defenses. The first part was for continuing to use Greek and Latin as the primary educational languages. Now, that is that is a piece that 
we abandoned after the Yale report. I don't know if they lost this battle soon after this argument or if it was later, but we've, we've lost that one. Latin and Greek are only used in really our seminaries and our seminary prep courses <laughs> at this point. Um, but the other part of its defense was for what we would define as a liberal arts education or liberal arts uh, curriculum. And so it's actually, it, it brings up a lot of arguments that we think of when somebody, you know, the type poses the question, why do I have to study all these 30 or 40 credits of things that don't relate to my major when I'm, I'm not I'm never going to use this philosophy course. Exactly. Yes. Yep. <laughs> so all of the arguments that you write up in your head to that student or that you actually tell them for why they're sitting in those courses, they actually originate in this report. So if you want very intellectualized language around those conversations, go read this thing. Ironically, it it is actually written in English, not in Latin. That was funny to me. <laughs> <laughs> like, of, of course you lost that if you're not even... <laughs> like, the, they had to deliver this in English because it's what people would understand. So, like, of course, we're not going to win that one. Happily, I might add, I studied Latin way too young, Greek way too young. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, when you said that we only use it in seminaries, I almost added, or classical Christian education, <laughs> which is what you went through. Guilty. So I just wanted to pull a couple of quotes, um, partly to kind of joke at how old this language is, but I think it really is beautifully said, but also to make some points and to encourage you to go and seek out this report if you're interested. Uh, so one quote is, the study of classics is useful, not only as it lays the foundations of a correct taste and furnishes the students with those elementary ideas which are found in the literature of modern times and which he nowhere well acquires as in their original sources, but also the study itself forms the most effectual discipline of the mental faculties. So that's all fancy language, essentially to say the point is the study itself, not necessarily what you gain from it. And that's seconded by this other quote that I actually like better, which says, the object is not to finish his education. This is written in the 1800s, so it's a bit unnecessarily gendered. But the object is not to finish his education, but to lay the foundation and to advance as far in the rearing the superstructure as the short period of his residence here will admit. If he acquires here a thorough knowledge of the principles of science, he may then, in a great measure, educate himself. He has, at least, been taught how to learn. Which, oh, that last line gets me going. But how often do we rely on this argument now, right, of this? The workforce is changing. Um, people mark our age. They change careers or, or jobs it's somewhere between seven or eight times in their lifespan. And so the conversations we're having now is how do we educate students, not for the first job that they have out of college, but educate them to change jobs as they transition through their career. And we're answering these questions in the 1800s, which is amazing. So definitely go back. And if that language inspired you as well, read the whole thing because it's great. And if you memorize some of these quotes, you will sound like you're in Goodwill Hunting where Matt Damon is just dropping the knowledge on people in the bar. Like that's where you really sound smart to your faculty members. And if you quote I, them in Latin, you may get tenured in your seminary. Love it. So Kara, uh, tell us a little bit about some of the, let's talk about some of the major incidents that happened in the United States and how they affected higher education as we start to wind down this episode. So first, 
what about World War II? I think that was a major pivot point for our nation in a lot of ways. How did that affect higher education? It was. And I like this question because prior to two weeks ago, I would not have assumed off the top of my own head that World War II affected higher ed in any, any major way. And if in any direction, I would have assumed World War II would have negatively affected education. Turns out it's the opposite for some people. Um, so the uh, in 1944, that's when the GI Bill passed, which allowed veterans um, this kind of unheard of amount of access to higher education. So that GI Bill inspired actually this huge rise in enrollment to institutions. Granted, it was pretty much just for white male veterans. Um, and there's there's a lot more we could dive into on that. Um, and I didn't pull all of the data from that. But basically, this benefit was given primarily towards white male veterans. But it really, it seems to me, looking back on the history of higher education, it seems to me this pivotal moment where college went from being a commodity that was great if you could afford it and kind of feed into the public good of what colleges were meant to be and actually shifted it more towards actually this could be accessible to more people and was kind of that open door towards what we know now, which is a bachelor's degree almost being the norm today. And I think the understanding that helps you then also further contextualize some of the socio-demographic realities that emerged in post-World War II that we still see the effects of today in terms of increased employment opportunities, increased uh, over the lifetime of someone's you know entire career, the increased earning opportunities, the opportunity for wealth generation. And so I think that's where understanding how that situation or pivot point continues to play out in the ripple effect into today is really fascinating and also frustratingly tragic, right? Exactly. We could, we could have a whole other episode just talking about uh, that. A big focus of our class was where in history was the door opened to new demographical groups and where was it closed? And this was a confusing one for us to consider because it, it opened the door for some and not for others. Um, but kind of kind of staying in that same realm, Mark, obviously, just a couple decades later, we had the civil rights movement, and I'm sure that affected higher ed pretty yep. significantly. Can you walk us through some of the key aspects of how that formed higher education as we know it? Yeah. So prior to uh, 1964, when the Civil Rights Act was enacted, uh, enrollment policies really differed by institution. Uh, but at, let's just let's put a baseline in that at minimum, we'll just say the climate was challenging for any person of color who enrolled at an institution of higher ed, while also acknowledging some institutions outright did not permit them. Uh, so that's the baseline that we're starting at. Uh, and there was a Quaker philanthropist, shout out to our, our friends, uh, named Richard Humphreys. And he, in Pennsylvania in 1837, I love how early that was, uh, he founded the first uh, historically black uh, college or university, HBCU. Uh, it was called Cheney University of Pennsylvania. Uh, and his goal with that was to create an institution that was open to students of color that would give them the opportunity to close that gap to be able to get the skills and the knowledge and the education that they were being denied elsewhere. Uh, and so by definition, by the most technical definition, HBCUs are institutions that uh, serve primarily students of color, 
that was that were founded before the Civil Rights Act of 1964, uh, and they're they're designed with the intent of supporting and uplifting students of color who face the significant hurdles of racism, discrimination, or enrollment bans at other institutions. So today, the definition's a little looser than that in the sense that it doesn't have to have been uh, founded prior to 1964, and so most primarily Black institutions or PBIs are considered HBCUs, and there's around 100 of them or so in the United States right now. Uh, and so while HBCUs were not the only option for students of color or uh, even the primary necessarily, they remain a valuable source of educational belonging, uh, and they're responsible for a lot of the leading intellectual contrib uh, contribution in the higher ed space. So I think that's a really fascinating way in which we see American history intersecting with the development of higher education. Mm. We had a student development professional from an HBCU come and speak during our residency, and I learned so much during that discussion. And I'm, I'm really I grateful bet. for them showing up. So that talks about HBCUs, which may or may not include some intersection with the Christian faith, but something that our listeners may be really eager to know is what was Christian higher ed doing during the civil rights movement or following some of the uh, legal requirements of that period? Yeah, that's a great question. And again, we could do at least one full episode just talking about the history of Christian higher ed when it relates to some of the major social movements. Unfortunately, as a general rule, Christian higher ed was not a leader uh, of integration or supporting students of color during this time. Uh, I'll, I'll start by saying there certainly were outliers or there certainly were examples. Uh, there were stories of people who preached against their own institutions, uh, saying, here's some of the ways in which we are platforming uh, racism and white supremacy in ways that are just not helpful uh, and downright uh, dishonoring to the Lord and to other individuals. But primarily, uh, if we're looking at this through the lens of uh, a general approach, Christian higher ed was not a leader in this. Uh, and there's several examples of this. Uh, just uh, a few that come to to the forefront. We have one evangelical institution that had racially segregated res halls and, and facilities where they didn't permit students of color uh, as late as the 1960s. Uh, and it, that was not uncommon. Uh, there are multiple instances of that. And these are schools within some of the schools that we work at. Uh, these are these are institutions that uh, are familiar to us. Uh, in the following decade, in the 70s, we have another institution that had to very intentionally seek out and enroll their first group of black students, uh, just as a, a, a worthy goal of integrating. But I think when we take a step back and look at, okay, what was that? How, how do we see that con, uh, kind of contextualized in the history of the institution? That was their 99th year of being a school, and they enrolled their first student of color. Uh, in that same decade, we also have another institution uh, within evangelical Christian schools uh, that was adopting their own ban on enrolling black students entirely, right? So we can see that duality within the same decade of the 70s. You have some who are trying to make strides and others who are stepping backward. Uh, we have one institution that dropped their ban on interracial dating in the year 2000. Uh, and I, I just, I think about how recent that is and how wild it is that we that we weren't calling more attention to that, if we're being honest. Um, and we still hear about schools where maybe it's not as overt. Maybe it's not as uh, baked into the um, the policies, the 
the goals, the articulations of who we are and what we're about. Uh, but there's still a lot of challenges uh, that we hear about every day, and many of us still live it, uh, uh, of what it is to navigate evangelical Christian colleges as a person of color, uh, as a racial minority, uh, as someone who maybe is in some of society's margins. And so I think that's, you know, when we talk about this, we're definitely away from the fun facts portion of this episode. But I think it's important, again, that we reckon with our history and how who we've been and where we've come from is still informing who we are today and the work we do and the campuses that we are so blessed to be able to work on. But that's where I think it's important that we do that hard work of looking in the mirror and saying, you know, where have we come from and what can I do to help build towards a better future and atone for a, a really poor past at times? Kara and I are nerds. We love diving into this kind of stuff. And so we hope that this has been a fun episode for you as you have hopefully learned a few things. If you knew everything that we said today, like I need to meet you because holy cow, you sound awesome. Um, if you knew everything we said to you, you were probably one of the seven other cohort members that I have. Or you wrote the textbook. Regardless, <laughs> I need you on my next bar trivia team. Um, but uh, we want to leave you with just an encouragement that while history of higher ed and student development is fascinating. You can start just at your own institution with understanding your own context better. Uh, and I would really encourage you dive into your own institution's history. That's one of the things that I think is, it's a fresh reminder as I'm starting new at an institution here at Biola University out in California. I am having to learn about the history of my school and my department because my job demands it. But there's also so much richness so much richness. Uh, I think that's the right way to say it. It's so rich to learn all of the aspects that really form the department and the campus that I'm stepping onto in 2023. And I think that's where it's helpful. Seek out your library archives. Seek out uh, the student newspapers. A lot of them are online. Uh, even look at your local papers. You know, your lo your library will have mentions of your institution. Um and I think one of the things that's really helpful, too, is to as as we both move forward into what will be history soon, um, but is our current present. But as we look back to like juxtapose the regional and national events that are happening with your own institution's rhythms to kind of see what can you learn about how it operates? Are there are there interplays that you're starting to recognize um, because your institution is going to be navigating the context that it's within uh, in a very unique way? Uh, and I think there's. There's a lot to be said for just learning because we love learning, but I also think that it's a really good reminder for me is that this is how we model for our students what it means to be students, uh, that we learn about our field of work. And I really do think, you know, we've joked about it, but we stand alongside the faculty members as co-educators. And I never want us to forget that. I wrote a dissertation because I believe in that about how valuable the work that we do is and how we need to be viewing ourselves as co-educators in the co-curricular. And so when you are standing with your faculty members and you are representing the student development department that you're in, you're contributing to the future of higher education. And I think we ought to take that seriously and, and knowing Knowing what we know about where we've come from, I think that helps us do that better into the future. Oh, I love it. You're speaking my language that I recently learned two weeks ago and became really passionate about. That's why we make these episodes, Kara. <laughs> so y'all, thanks for sticking with us through this bonus episode. If you made it to the end, man, you are a nerd and I'm sorry to say it, but you're probably proud of it. Honestly, if you made it to the end. Um, so we'd love to know we haven't asked for feedback before, but 
If you liked the format of this episode, if you would like to see more kind of content-based discussions, um, let us know. It's the scholarship at acsd.org email address where you can most easily get a hold of us. Um, You can also send your thread to at Bethel University if you think that this should count as my final reflection paper for my class. (laughs) (laughs) Leave it to Kara to hustle so that she doesn't have to write a paper. I love it. (laughs) But seriously, we so appreciate you hanging in there with us for this episode, and we are excited for another year of talking with you guys and introducing you to some fun student development people on our regular uh, interview-style episodes. Um, Thanks for chilling with us for this bonus. Bye, everybody. Have a good one. This podcast has been a production of the Association for Christians in Student Development. To learn more about ACSD, please visit acsd.org. To contact us, please email scholarship at acsd.org. Thank you.